Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turco. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. Look, it might not feel like spring in your corner of the globe, but my friends, spring is officially here. Spring is our gentle reminder that life goes on. Spring is when we make plans. Spring is when we plant seeds. And the seed for this podcast was planted by one of my very first Studs guests, Brad Newman. Hey, take a listen. Here's what Brad had to say. Brad Newman, can you recommend to me a guest I should pursue? Anybody who uh, works in livestock, especially high quality, not commodity stuff, but uh, and especially a young person, if you uh, grow animals for a living to listen how they live and their connection with nature and their connection with sales and big cities and their connections with chefs and their connections with uh, the environment, it's unfucking believable Is there a particular individual who you think I should reach out to or, or a farm? I, I am totally enamored by Hayden Holbert. He, he owns a farm called Avram Farms in Green Lake, Wisconsin, and he grew up in Bucktown in the city. And he is 24 freaking years old and is a livestock farmer. And I don't know how he got into it. I don't know how he became an expert on it. He's doing amazing, very incredible, difficult things. And he's growing heirloom pigs and heirloom chickens. And he's 24 freaking years old. It's unbelievable. I'll try to get him on the show. You know, Brad was such an energetic and vulnerable guest that I knew I had to do everything in my power to get Hayden Holbert on this podcast, which I did. And that's today's episode. But I got to tell you, if you haven't heard that episode with Brad Newman, I really recommend that you do. Not because you need to listen to Brad's episode to understand this one. But it does seem to me that Brad and Hayden have a real special dialogue going on. So if you love the Brad Newman episode, you'll love this one. If you dig this episode, you'll dig Brad Newman's episode. I love them both. (laughs) And if you're into the food scene, I just gotta, gotta, gotta make two recommendations. First, dial up my conversation with Chef Courtney Burns from season two. She's the best. She's the bestest. And one more thing. Check out a brand spanking new podcast hosted by Chef Nariba Shepard, an industry guy, and my former student, Justin Arnett Graham. They explore what they call dark side of the plate conversations. They aim to shed light on the human costs of the hospitality experience, tilting the microphone to those that are often forgotten and overlooked. They explore the troubling realities in the service industry, and they provide tangible resources to promote a more equitable landscape. It's called Terms of Service. Yeah, I'll link to it in the show notes. You should really check it out. They're on to something, those two. But before you change the dial and head over to Terms of Service, I got to do the thing that I do and tell you that if you've been listening to Studs, if you learned something, if you've taken some solace in our conversations, then let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com studs and see what you can get for supporting the podcast. No pressure. But for as little as a couple bucks a month, you can help to keep studs going strong. And I'd like to seize a second to offer some special thanks to a studs patron and a friend of the family, Lori Hofer. And I want to thank her on two counts. First, she's taken it upon herself to throw a couple hard-earned bucks at the studs pod every month. And I... I'm really grateful. Thank you, Lori, for doing that. But I also want to thank her for sharing some of her creative energies with me. 
You know, this past summer when we were in a real harsh lockdown, my family and I had very few social interactions. And it's part of the reason I started the Studs podcast. You know, I just really wanted to connect with people and to help to magnify their voices and to share their stories, partly out of the fear that it seemed to me like the nature of work was changing beneath our feet. And I wanted to try to document what people do for a living. You know, but again, partly because I just felt the need to connect people and to give others a chance to bounce ideas around. Anyway, we didn't have too much in the way of social interaction, but Lori's kid and my kid are real good friends. They're school buddies. And we arranged a really cool situation this summer where her daughter and my daughter got to take swimming lessons together in the lake down the street from our house. And one or two days a week, Lori and I would hang out at the lake and watch our kids learn to swim. And I would just bounce ideas around with her. She's a real creative, clever person. And she knows how to like build things from the ground up and actualize projects. She knows about vision and strategy. And I don't know about this stuff. And she was just so empathic and so supportive of my ideas. And she like at least pretended to listen to me. She must have been listening because... She had really incisive and fruitful guidance to offer me. So Laurie Hofer has been a patron of the podcast from before I even hit record for the first time. And now she is officially a patron of the podcast over at patreon.com slash studs. Thanks, Lore. You're the cat's pajama, sister. And I'm crazy about your kids. The 50-year-old kid's pretty cool, too. But those little ones you got, those two are the jam. And for the record, I feel a little bit weird taking your money from you. But but I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. I'm not above that. I'm a high school teacher. Who am I kidding? And listen, my people, if you're not in a position to patronize my project, maybe you might be so kind as to show your support by leaving a rating, leaving a review. Maybe tell a friend or two. All right, so I hope you enjoy Hayden Holbert's journey from a West Side Chicago kid to a central Wisconsin farmer. He explores the trials and the tribulations of the timeless art of tending the land. Hayden honors the soil. He honors livestock. And he honors the community that he has cultivated at Avram Farms. Please... My friends, join me in conversation with Hayden Holbert. Hayden Holbert, welcome to Studs. Thank you so much for joining me. You're a farmer. How do you describe what you do? I operate Avram Farm, and what that generally entails is managing a crew of talented people who are usually my friends or friends of friends and it, it is really multifaceted we you know produce food we're food producers we raise livestock and grow vegetables we we carry that food and take it on a journey until it gets to the consumer's plate um, whether that's to a restaurant or a small grocery store or a family um, and so there's a lot that goes into that, and it, it really at times feels like a lot of jobs um, smashed into one job that <laughs> we refer to as farmer. I really look forward to diving into how all those pieces kind of come together. But before we do, would you be so kind as to walk me along your path? Were you, were you raised on the farm? How did you become a farmer? So I grew up in uh, the city of Chicago, but my mom grew up on some land in Green Lake, Wisconsin, which is where I started the farm. And as a kid, I grew up coming up here on most weekends and a lot of summers. And it, it really started for me with our neighbor, Wayne Albright. 
he's he's been a longtime friend of our families. I think one day I went over to his farm and he put me up on a on one of his tractors, and I just I thought it was uh, the coolest thing I'd ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It is. I I don't know. It just planted a seed in my brain. I couldn't ignore it. I just got obsessed with being a farmer, the image of being a farmer. And um, I started making plans and reading books. Starting about when I was 10, pretty much knew that was going to be a farming was going to be a big part of my life from that time. Once I figured that out, I started growing little vegetable gardens during the summers uh, with the help of my parents. My dad would, we would load our vegetables into his Prius and he would drive me to our local farmer's market starting when I was 13. You know, we would sell vegetables and come back home with 50 bucks or whatever and kind of grew every, every year a little bit more. Yeah, eventually I went to college. I majored in sustainable agriculture and, and Appalachian old time music. Um, really? Yeah. Another big part of my life has been music. Where in the city of Chicago were you raised? I grew up in Bucktown. I went to Lincoln Park High School. Bucktown kid who matriculated from Lincoln Park High School, and you, you found your way to Appalachian music and farming. Yes. Yeah. What was it, what was it about the farm when you were a kid that had such a pull just the the magic of putting seeds in the ground and watching them grow. And I guess the idea of producing food, I was convinced at a pretty young age that all the food in grocery stores was garbage. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that... Yeah. Um, yeah, sounds right. Yeah. And that... There is a serious problem with the way that we consume food and the options that most people have. I wanted to do something about that. And I also really just something about the lifestyle that I perceived at that age really resonated with me. And so it was a combination of wanting independence. I have had I've struggled with kind of following directions for most of my life. And yeah, you I've, and me both, sister. <laughs> and then the other part was really feeling like there was a problem and, and that I could do something about it. What was the problem? My understanding of it has really evolved, you know, since I was 15 or so. Um, but I was pretty active in, you know, protesting factory farms and, you know, factory farms are evil and they're destroying the planet. Um, there's this other way to do things and that is starting a small farm working on the from the land and uh, really promoting kind of that ideology of you know sustainable agriculture and and a local food network to feed a regional food economy so you have this childhood fascination with you know animals and machines and planting the seeds in the ground and watching them grow, but then there's sort of like this ideological motivation that you have to rage against the machine, as it were, huh? Yeah, I might be giving myself a little bit too much credit. And <laughs> when I was 15, I don't think I thought about it that deeply at that time. I think I I liked wearing a trucker hat. Um, that said Bush Hog on it, which was <laughs> the company of the yeah. of the rototiller that my dad bought. And the ideology kind of came later, especially when I went to college. Uh, I went to Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina. The academic part of my college career was, it was really an environmental science degree with a few classes in agriculture. So my agricultural training really, for the most part, came from working on the college's diversified livestock farm. And I had some amazing mentors there and amazing coworkers, and really learned so much and got, got really inspired. During the time that I was working there is when I laid the groundwork for starting Avram Farm. Can you tell me a little bit about your farm? Like, what is it 
look like? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a unique space. So my grandfather, Lester Schwartz, he bought two decrepit dairy farms in the 50s, really without any intention of farming them. He was an artist, and he taught at the local liberal arts college in our town of Ripon. But he also, over the course of his life, transformed the property into a art exhibit, really. He was a painter and a sculptor. And by the time he retired and was kind of winding down in his life, there were probably a hundred big steel sculptures all over the property. And a lot of them are still here today. And so that it's an exciting landscape to be a part of that is an intersection of art and return to agriculture. I'm going to confess to you that I'm sort of grappling with feelings of envy <laughs> about your life. That sounds really special. What do we have? Rolling hills? Is there water nearby? How many acres do we have? Yeah. Help me out. So we are operating 40 acres, and that's a combination of pasture for our livestock and vegetable fields. We are on some rolling hills. Um, however, it is fairly flat all around us. And we have a maple forest that adjoins our farm that my aunt owns. And so we're kind of surrounded by a landscape that's full of life and diversity and is an inspiring place to to start a e ecologically-based farm because our goal in, in creating... A sustainable farm is really to imitate ecosystem services that we observe in nature. And so it's unlike a lot of the Midwest that's just completely flat, where the landscape is just not very dynamic. I feel lucky that we we have, you know, a mix of trees and spring-fed creeks and topography that is interesting. It's been hard for me to slow down and really appreciate our landscape and ecology. I've only been doing that kind of recently. It's It's been a whirlwind starting this farm. I can only imagine. Before we dive into that whirlwind, if you don't mind my asking, I'd be curious to learn more about your grandfather, Lester Schwartz, yeah, of course. He grew up in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, and he went to school at the Art Institute of Chicago and ended up traveling all over the world after college and um, settled back in Wisconsin, I think, because his family lived there. Um, I think he drew inspiration from, from nature. I think that really kind of inspired some of his art. He later married one of his art students, Gloria. She really was drawn to the farm and the and the land, and she got horses, and uh, she would be out working 10-hour days cutting brush and managing the understory of the forest. She built a massive stone wall that's part of the house we live in. Um, so she was really inspired by by the ecology of the of the farm there were horses are there still horses what kind of animals do we have around the farm we we don't have any horses we raise pigs and chickens and we manage them on pasture that is rotated either daily or weekly we're pretty content with raising those two species. We started out really trying to do everything that came in our heads. We tried growing every vegetable we could. We started out with sheep, um, which was a disaster. <laughs> Tell me the sheep horror story. Oh, I, I bought four sheep when I first started the farm. And... We, we just weren't, I mean, I got to the farm, right? My, my grandpa wasn't a farmer. The farm, when I started it, was really just a house and some land. 
there we we didn't have any fences we had no outbuildings and so the story of Abram Farm has been and currently is really kind of building building the farm from the ground up and so every summer we we have a pretty significant uh, construction project underway you know trying to trying to build the infrastructure we need and so the problem was we didn't have any infrastructure for these sheep and sheep are hard to contain with the best infrastructure and so it was just a we were just chasing sheep every day sheep without a shepherd huh exactly it's a uh, it's a problem, and it's also a good name for a song. You can put that in your bucket. That's true. So you have chickens and pigs. Can I ask you the dumbest question in the world, coming from a guy who knows almost nothing about farming? Sure. Why chickens and pigs? I managed chickens and pigs when I worked on the college farm in North Carolina. So that's what I knew. Um, I really knew how to raise them. I, I knew what they needed, what kind of infrastructure I wanted to build for them. They're also livestock that require fairly little infrastructure, and the overhead expenses for them are pretty low compared to something like cattle, which cattle are huge, and they break shit, and they need pretty significant infrastructure if you're going to raise them um, safely. And um, also the turnaround for pigs and chickens is pretty fast. When I graduated college uh, in my senior year, I applied for an FSA loan, uh, the Farm Service Agency, which is an incredible resource for anyone that is thinking about starting a farm and doesn't have amazing credit because you don't need any to take a loan out with the um, Farm Service Agency. Hmm. Um, their purpose is to make capital accessible for especially young farmers to start their operations. And so I took a $100,000 loan out my senior year of college, and I was looking at the repayment plan, and if I, if I decided to raise cattle, I would be looking at almost a year until we would make any money. And so... With chickens, we buy chicks, they come off a truck, and we raise them for nine weeks, and then we butcher them, and then we we order another batch. And with pigs, um, the turnaround time is about nine, maybe ten months, um, and so it really kind of fit our bootstrapped shoestring budget, and I also just really like them as animals. Can I ask what you like about them? Yeah, I mean, I, I should say I I connect a lot more with pigs than I do with chickens. I, I appreciate chickens as a as a whole, but I don't really connect with them on an individual level. But with pigs, just have a lot of a lot of personality, and they're really they're really sweet animals to work with. They're really smart. Some farmers just buy feeder piglets, which are piglets right after they're weaned um, and separated from their mother. We do our own breeding on the farm, and so that's called farrow to finish. Farrowing is when a sow gives birth. And so we keep breeding stock on the farm, and some of those sows will stay on this farm for up to 10 years. And so you, you do get pretty close to the animals, and I don't know, it's a nice relationship. Yeah, it sounds like it. Two quick follow-ups on that. Yeah. You develop relationships with these animals, but you know their fate, and who knows? Maybe they do also. How does their fate, inevitable as it is, determine or affect your relationship with them? It used to be pretty hard for me uh, when we first started the farm. It used to be something... Like my rational brain would would tell me that you know this is like why am I a farmer? In order for there to be any life, really at any point, any level of an ecosystem, there has to be death. Um, that's true 
if you're just looking at um, soil organisms, microorganisms in the soil, it's true at every level of an ecosystem. And so uh, what we do as farmers is manipulate our ecosystem to be especially productive. It bothered me just on an emotional level at first, but at this point I've really internalized that and it I just don't really think about it in that way anymore. Was there a turning point for you in your thinking of it, or is it just the constant exposure and the kind of the daily grind of it that helped you to pivot? It just became so routine that this is part of my life now. It is absolutely hard for most people to, I guess, kind of understand that or relate to that because... Uh, the vast majority of people's lives have, you don't, you just don't come into contact with food production. In order for there to be meat on people's plates, um, this is what has to happen. It's just kind of the the career that I that I chose, and it's the lifestyle that I love. Yeah, you're at peace with it. That's cool. My second follow up question is much more simple. There are a lot of different types of pigs a lot of different breeds of pig what types of pigs do you breed and how do you select the right type for your farm yeah that is a really fun part of my job the the breeding strategy and learning about all these breeds and their their history and where they come from what their attributes are um, how their physiology influences how they interact with the environment and then the the product of you know crossing two different breeds or three different breeds or um, selecting for a specific trait that might influence meat quality or might influence their ability to thrive on pasture or even you know different pig breeds have different lengths of small intestine that determines how well they can digest grass and and other forages that they eat. You know, modern uh, pig breeds have developed a really small intestine because they they are fed um, extremely high energy and high digestible protein um, grain, and so they don't need a very long intestine to absorb all the nutrients from their feed. But pigs that are less common and the older breeds of pigs have, you know, maintained a digestive tract that can really digest a lot more of what they can glean off a of pasture. And so, I guess to answer your question, we raise predominantly Berkshires. We have a few red wattles. We've raised some Tamworth pigs, and I'm looking at getting an Asaba Island pig boar, which is an interesting breed that originates from Spain. They're like very genetically isolated. When you breed two pigs with very different genes, um, you get you know hybrid vigor, and so that's a faster growing pig the positive traits of each pig are often amplified. And so really what we're going after is excellent meat quality. We're looking at marbling, the pH of the meat, tenderness, and kind of the conformation of the animal. So we want the right size loin, we want the right size hams. And then we're also breeding for, you know, things that help us out. So durability on pasture and large litter sizes and yeah really a rugged animal because they are outside most of their lives yeah and they're outside in central wisconsin so they just have to be tough as nails don't they that too yeah although pigs have a a much easier time in the cold than the heat they struggle when it gets really hot out forgive me in advance for asking but you're talking about pig breeding. Can you talk to me about the work of getting pigs to breed? Is it hard at all to get them to... Is it hard to get pigs to fuck? 
or pigs do, or do pigs just want to fuck like how interested are pigs in fucking are they like pandas who are like kind of like notoriously <laughs> like against fucking and like pandas like you have to show them like panda porn to get them going and they're still like well are like are pigs like pandas or are like pigs pretty pretty horny or does it depend on the breed anything you could tell me about that will be very edifying well any pig that needs needs any help isn't gonna isn't gonna last very long on our farm that's our number one reason for culling our boars like first you have to wait every 21 days which is when the sow comes into her heat cycle you can monitor that by her behavior uh we had mark on a calendar when we thought each sow's heat cycle was going to start and then for a few days before that we would walk the sow down to the boar and the process of determining whether she's in heat or not was kind of getting the boar to sniff her and you'd press gently on her back and then if she would was into that you'd get on top of her and put even more pressure on her back and if she arches her back and is excited about what you're doing then there's a pretty good chance she's in heat um, and so at that point we would walk her into the boar and uh, make sure that the boar bred her um, and sometimes that involves grabbing a boar's dick and uh, guiding it into the sow's vulva so sometimes your work requires you to grab a boar's dick. That's correct. I have to tell you, I could chase you down this rabbit hole for another hour. This is endlessly <laughs> fascinating to me. And thank you so much for just like walking me through it. I want to pivot a little bit, though, because I know that a lot of your work is wrapped up in produce as well. Can you talk a little bit about what types of produce your farm has experimented with what has been really successful and enjoyable what has been terribly challenging what have you given up on walk me through the produce problem yeah that's a timely question um, because this year we have as a crew have decided to make a pretty major shift in how we are approaching our our vegetable farming when we started the farm up until really last summer, we have tried to grow an extremely wide variety of vegetables under the assumption that if we bring a wide variety of vegetables to the farmer's market, people will want to shop with us more. And aside from that reason, I don't think there are any other good reasons why we did that other than just wanting to grow a bunch of fun vegetables but every year uh, around August you know after going through the chaos of trying to grow you know over 50 different kinds of vegetables that all have very specific needs they have new specific um, nutrient requirements if you really want to optimize their growth every every year that we've been farming I've felt like I just want to stop growing vegetables yeah, it's because you were growing 50 of them, man. Yeah. Well, it's one thing if you're just growing vegetables, but we're also a livestock farm. They're just completely different enterprises that don't actually have a lot in common. Um, aside from them being able to benefit each other in terms of reducing inputs and supplying ecosystem services to each other. So after... For stubborn years, we have decided to significantly reduce the amount of vegetables we're growing from about eight acres to two acres is what we're planning for next year. And we are only growing tomatoes and greens. And that, that final decision really came after last year where we had a pretty significant crop failure for a lot of our vegetables. But what we realized getting into the season, by the time we were going to farmer's markets, we were basically just bringing tomatoes because that was our one crop where we really did a good job growing them. We realized we weren't actually making very much less money. And people started thinking of us as the, you know, that farm that has the best tomatoes. 
our, our tomatoes looked fantastic. And we realized we really didn't need to put ourselves through the turmoil of trying to grow so many different things. That must be liberating to just sort of take a deeper dive into greens and tomatoes. And I was astonished to hear when you said that you were experimenting with growing 50 different types of vegetables. Sounds like some pretty frustrating times. And I'm glad you found a simpler path. Yeah. I've noticed that throughout your explanations, you tend to use the word we, and I want to get a sense for who we are. Um, How many people work on your farm? How do you hire them? How do you keep them on? You got a couple friend farmers living in your place, I hear. Tell me about the community. Yeah, I have had 13 people work here um, so far since we started in 2017. And I started the farm with my ex-girlfriend, Olivia, and we were really ran the farm together. I guess right off the bat, I ended up hiring her best friend and a couple of my best friends. We all lived at the farm. It was chaotic, but generally a fun time. And that has kind of continued. I haven't I think there's only been one person that I I didn't really know beforehand. I, yeah, I feel really fortunate to know um, a lot of people who are passionate about agriculture, especially, I think this is prevalent everywhere in the country, but I, I know from talking to farmers in our area, um, hiring is one of the biggest challenges, a small farm, because... A lot of times the farm employees are not paid what they're worth. It's a lot of times farms are in rural areas, and so there's just not a big pool to draw from. It's really challenging work, and it's really a struggle to find people. I feel really fortunate in that I I haven't had too much of that problem. I am really interested in this community that you seem to have built up around Avram Farms. You have friends who stick around and they come back season after season to, to, to work with you. Everyone lives pretty close. Everyone is there most days of the week. Yeah, it's, it's a big house with a lot of bedrooms. You know, everyone has their personal space and Last summer we had the most employees we've ever had. We There were six people plus me working at the farm, and we we're all living at the farm. You live in community with your friends in the farmhouse. If our listeners are listening closely, they've done the math. You're you're in your 20s. These are young people. Most of your friends, I'm just going to assume, are somewhere around your age there are no shortage of diet tribes in the American cultural and political landscape. Like, you know, young people don't want to work hard and young people don't want to farm and no one has any interest in this. And y'all are really pushing against the grain. Now, like I know farms are to feed. It's that simple on some level, but your farm, it seems to me, has a much more nuanced mission. It seems to me that on some level, what you and your friends and your community are seeking to do is to push against, we'll call it modern mainstream farming. Y'all are being defiant in a way. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you and yours are kind of pushing in opposition to the norm? Yeah, I think we're all here farming together really because of our general mission. Kind of the mission that I set into motion starting the farm and that has evolved and developed um, and been shaped by the people that have come through the farm and left their mark on it. And that's that's really what excites me about 
being in this position, you know, being lucky enough to have land that was in my family to start the farm is to create this agricultural system where, you know, people that are passionate about agriculture can come in and really take ownership over it and help steer the ship. And so I, I really try as a boss to make it their farm too. I really like the way you put that. That's really inspiring to me. And I'll hazard to guess that your employees and your friends, they sense that. And that's what keeps them around. It's what keeps them coming back for more. I bet it's a great environment you all have created there, huh? It's a work in progress. It's really what we're we're all working towards and we we do have a good time here i'm excited about being in our winter season because this is when we can you know operations on the farm start to slow down and we start doing a lot of planning and really working together talking about what went well what didn't go well last season um how we can improve things um you know, make better schedules and follow through more. And um, while I generally feel clear-headed and and like I am confident in, you know, the decisions we're making and the direction we're moving toward, it is hard to see the path forward sometimes. And that's maybe the biggest struggle of this farm. Sometimes it's hard to make sense of all of it and see a clear path forward. So you already kind of took one step into this. So why don't we dive into this water together? Farming is, to say the very least, a multidisciplinary endeavor. You're a farmer, but you have to deal with sales and administration, management. You probably do plenty of engineering and other fix-it type of work, branding and accounting. It's a lot. Like when you think about all these different roles, sales, administration, management, engineering, branding, accounting, all of that, like which one of these is most compelling to you? And is there one that's sort of repellent to you? I mean, I don't know if this is an acceptable answer, but I, I really find a lot of joy in the the orchestration of all of those things and working with people and and seeing people take control and ownership over those different roles and where my role is to bring all of that together and maintain the those relationships that produce a positive outcome. So when it's all humming along, Hayden, you're able to know that the people who are most interested in, you know, branding, they're, they're doing that and you can bounce ideas around with them, but they're going to sort of take the lead on that. And the people who are most interested in, you know, accounting or running the retail store, you can empower them and, and work alongside them. But you're, you're the, the orchestrator, you're the symphony conductor. Is that what, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, more, more or less. I'm happiest when I see our our mission start to come true. And when I think about the actions that have to take place on the farm, I could take or leave almost any of them. If, <laughs> if, if I was best used on the farm just to do accounting, I, I would do it pretty happily. That's probably my biggest weakness. So <laughs> okay. Wouldn't be good for the farm, but I, I really do feel happy, you know, fitting into whatever role that is best for the farm. That's also, I think, what drives my desire to bring our employees into more of leadership roles is because I'm really not interested in my idea or my vision necessarily. I'm, I'm more interested in what is best for the farm and what will carry our mission through. And our mission generally being to produce a large amount of high quality food that positively impacts the environment. 
um, and making that accessible to most people. It sounds to me like somehow or another you've managed to do this thing almost without ego and as a bona fide team player. Or at least that's what you aspire to, but it seems like that's where you're at, huh? That's what I aspire to. I, I, I'm sure ego kind of infiltrates my thinking all the time, but I, I do try to push back on that because I, I don't think it has any place. We're trying to achieve a lot of things, you know, starting from pretty humble beginnings. And so I, I just don't feel like there's time to have an ego. When you're a farmer, there's no time for ego, huh? Yeah, that is my personal catchphrase. Yeah, there we go. We landed on it. Yeah. We, we found you a catchphrase, my friend. <laughs> so you're a musician, and before we started recording, I mentioned to you that I happened to stumble across an album or two that you recorded, and I liked it quite a bit. This very well might be the most preposterous question you get here on the podcast, but here it goes nonetheless. With music as a metaphor, and you as part of a band... What instrument would best personify your role on the team slash in the band? I think that I would be a bass player uh, because I, I really don't like being in the spotlight that much doing podcasts, interviews. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it's... it's I. This is the first podcast I've done, and I'm enjoying it. Thanks. I am, um, too. Good. I enjoy being in a supportive role and really essential to the groove. I like it. It's a great answer. Sorry I even asked. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a good question. So you're the bass player, and you're laying down a groove. And I guess I want to get a sense for what it feels like when everything's in the pocket and it's all humming along can you kind of paint me a picture of a satisfying work day on the farm yeah i think i think today is a good example of that earlier in the week we had some vehicle issues our our truck broke down and this morning we, we looked at our schedule and we noticed we were probably about a day behind where we were hoping to be. It was just a really satisfying day of the three of us coming up with solutions to prioritize and, and get what we needed to get done scheduled and then going out and, and doing it. It's kind of a stressful time right now because the ground is going to be frozen soon and we still have some projects we really need to get done um, like finishing this hoop barn that the pigs are living in trying to button that up for winter to keep them warm and so today we we started welding these brackets that will attach the siding to our hoop barn this is a project that's really pretty challenging for three people that aren't necessarily builders yeah. Um, and so I, it was just a really nice that, you know, all of our equipment worked and we were really making progress. Um, it's It was a really nice uh, change of pace from it being 20 degrees and the tractor not starting. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I had mentioned earlier uh, Helen and Scott nearing these back-to-the-land pioneers in the 30s and 40s. Uh, they were successful New York City entrepreneurs, and they, they, they moved upstate, and they wrote about what they did. And I think there's something uniquely and distinctly American about what it is that you do. And I'm not sure how that sounds to you when I say it, but let me contextualize it. You know, from Jefferson to Thoreau... And then with this interregnum of industrial, urban, cosmopolitan America, 
and then you have the back to the land movement of the 30s and then you have sort of a reprise of that with the folk movement in the 60s and early 70s there's a dialogue about the small independent farmer in the American landscape that has always been meaningful to me. And I'll confess to you that I've had a tendency to romanticize it. But I remember reading this book, The Good Life, 20, 25 years ago by Helen and Scott Neering. And they talk rather poetically the way that Thoreau wrote poetically about how one of the greatest joys we have in life is to develop, to architect a systematic plan and to work assiduously each and every day in an effort to achieve that vision to master that plan. And I imagine that you get to really enjoy that as a farmer in ways that a lot of us might not appreciate in the same way. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. I think in a lot of ways there is a lot of satisfaction from seeing how far we've come and seeing all the people working here and making it making it their own and really gaining experience and competency seeing someone come on this farm who's never seen a pig before and watch them learn how to drive a tractor and do things that are essential to keeping this farm running is really cool and a big part of why I love doing it is being a teacher. Yeah. Well, I think we just found another thing that you and I share. (laughs) As a teacher myself, you've got my solidarity. But all of that work and all of that effort, it adds up. And I think there's a lot of your work that's really just a grind. What's the biggest grind of being a modern-day farmer, and how do you grapple with that grind? Well, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but for me, the the biggest grind for me is getting bogged down by the chaotic nature of what we're doing and, and feeling like I can... feeling like I am able to give everything the attention it needs when where at least where our farm is at now there's just not enough time for me to give the farm what it needs in every department our goal has been to scale this farm to be quite bigger than than we are right now um, so that there's really upward mobility within our organization and we can have people work here where maybe a full-time job is being an accountant or a full-time job is managing the feed of our pigs or growing feed for our pigs. I'm really, since I started the farm, I've felt strongly about working cooperatively and, and getting big. A lot of farmers, especially young farmers getting into it, have been misled, I think, by the local food movement and, you know, people like Alice Waters and Michael Pollan. They've kind of defined the local food movement as this idea where sustainable farms should be small and that there's virtue in being small and that they should be family run and they encourage people to be entrepreneurs and go out and start their their farm on their own. And I've done that and it's really hard and it it doesn't have to be. Being a small farm doesn't really contribute a meaningful amount of food to our regional food economy when you look at it within the context of how much food people eat. It's really just less than a drop in the bucket 
even if you look at farmers markets as a whole, they get outsold 400 to 1 when compared to supermarkets. Um, it's really pretty insignificant. And so what I've been motivated by is to create an agricultural model, a collective of farms even, that operates at a scale where we can make an impact, um, an impact in producing high-quality food, um, and an impact where we are operating on enough land where we can actually make an ecological difference. And I, I just don't see the virtue in being a small farmer if those are your goals. I hear you. That makes perfect sense to me. And it sounds like a real rub, right? It sounds like a lot of expectations that you have to grapple with and and defy. And I'm sure you will. You seem like a yeah. clever dude. You got a plan. <laughs> you got to figure it out. Yeah, but it, it's been hard. Um, I, I think we've really been set back. Um, a lot of farms have by... Uh, by, you know, following in the footsteps of um, kind of what the local food movement thinks you should do um, and what the kind of celebrity farmers within the local food movement have done. And I've come to the realization that it's just not that possible to be a small-scale farmer and also not rely on exploiting something. Uh, whether that's underpaid staff or inflated food prices, it just doesn't seem like it works. Well, you're definitely going against the grain, man, and I honor that. I'm damn sorry that it is as hard as it must be. It's an uphill climb, but it seems like you're playing bass for a pretty darn good band <laughs> so i hope that you and your team stay committed to it despite the times or to spite the times yeah i gotta tell you i really enjoy the story of your farm i didn't know about your grandfather and his role and your aunt is down the road and all that what can I say? I'm a, I'm a sucker for a story. <laughs> and as we begin to drive this train into the station, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you to tell me a story or two. In fact, two. Can you tell me the story of a professional triumph and a professional failure and begin with the failure so that we could end on a triumphant note? Sure. I, I think it's important to explain this story just to shed some light on the reality that basically all farmers face and to kind of counter the romanticism that lingers around the idea of farming most of the time um, in our society. And this was, this was last winter. I had one um, employee working for me who, for health reasons, had to leave and so for about a month, it was just me on the farm. And during winter, although things slow down, it's also a challenging time because we're, you know, trying to keep water from freezing when it's negative 10 degrees outside. Everything takes longer to do on the farm when there's a foot of snow on the ground. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I was on the farm alone. We had one last batch of chickens. We raised chickens seasonally because they're, they do best on pasture, and, and we kind of wrap up our chicken season, um, usually in the middle of November, um, when it starts getting cold. But we had this batch of chickens that got away from us, and their butcher date was, I think, like December 10th or something. And so I was able to get some friends over and we loaded all the chickens up into a trailer and just the whole week around this chicken um, this chicken butchering 
just everything that could have possibly gone wrong on the farm did. All of our vehicles were out of commission. I had to rent a U-Haul pickup truck and use this trailer that's just not meant to hold chickens. And we kind of jerry-rigged another platform so that we could fit them all. And yeah, we just we ended up loading the chickens at midnight and I had to be at the butcher at 6.30 in the morning and it was a three and a half hour drive and there was a blizzard out. And so I had just gotten back from doing farmer's markets in Chicago before we loaded the chickens. So I had been on the road for six hours and done a farmer's market. And by the time we got the chickens loaded, I was exhausted and knew I was only going to get like two hours of sleep. So I ended up just leaving at midnight and figured I'd sleep a couple hours in the truck uh, once I got there. But it ended up taking like six and a half hours to get to the butcher and um, just driving through snow in this shitty U-Haul truck. And it was just a really bleak time. Also just being totally alone at the farm. That was probably the my biggest low point of farming. Yeah, man, that sounds like cold, hard that. times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, winter is can be brutal. Yeah, they sure can. Wisconsin winters for the farmer. Yeah, That's some grit, man. You got some <laughs> grit. Well, hey, do me a favor. Temper that challenge. With a story of triumph, will you? All right. One thing that I'm really proud of with our farm is how we pivoted our business this spring and adapted after the shutdown order and and adapted. We we really could have kind of gone out of business when that happened, um, but we really just created a a sales outlet kind of out of thin air and it caught on really fast. Um, and because of the hard work of the crew, because of our dedication and because everyone working on the farm really cared about the farm, we, we busted our asses to basically create a sales platform with over a hundred products and successfully run it in three days and we were getting all this positive feedback from customers and and how grateful they were um, that we were delivering to them and they didn't have to leave their homes and that they felt safe getting food from us and yeah I think that's that's a big triumph for the farm yeah it sounds like a big triumph man congrats congrats on the pivot I mean, that's the seminal definition of a triumph, right? You faced near existential adversity and you found a way to be creative and to create a market. And I'm sure you made a lot of people happy in the process. So go team Avram Farms. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing your work life with me. I learned a ton. I'm grateful for the time you spent with me. And I'm really inspired by how committed you are to creating a really inspiring culture at your farm. And it sounds really lovely, if I could just be so blunt about it, that you've been able to, in our increasingly cold and dark world, create an environment for you and your friends to engage in good hard work And I hope to laugh and play and sing at night. That's sort of my vision. And I'm just going to stick with that because it makes me happy. Hayden Holbert, thank you so much for being on Studs. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. The, The pleasure has been all mine. All right. So that was me in conversation with Hayden Holbert. I gotta confess, I might be a little bit jealous. The notion of being out on the land is so appealing right now. 
But who are we kidding? I would not know the first thing to do with that land. I'd probably just dead-eye a couple cows and they would dead-eye me. And I'd be like, this was a huge mistake. But he figured it out. You know, I should say that he's a proper rock star. I'm going to link to some of his music in the show notes. His band, they really got something. I don't know if they're still playing, if they can make time to play music, but you should give it a listen. It's pretty righteous. All right, kids, subscribe and leave a review. If you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you got the means to give a few, think about heading over to patreon.com slash studs. But much, much, much more importantly, please, y'all, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Embrace the things that make you smile and try to spread some love. Funky times, y'all. Funky times. I can't. I'll see you next week. <laughs>